Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Well, EJ, we don't have to do this very often, but as is the case, as normal with the Bears, we have an addendum that we have to record the night before the episode comes out because so many things have changed since we recorded it roughly two-ish weeks ago. We thought we knew the Bears' offensive line. We thought we had that thing dialed in. We do not. Uh, So many signings have happened and potential trades that are about to happen and injuries. So in the interest of being accurate and giving you guys an updated take on the Bears' offensive line, which is, of course, the most interesting topic that I'm sure all of you come to this channel for, we want to be accurate and give you an updated look at this offensive line and everything that has happened in the two weeks since we recorded the episode. So we're throwing this segment at the very beginning, and then we're going to get into the rest of the episode. Where to begin? Um, probably. I, I know. Oh, I know. Go for it. It was worse, and then it was better, and now it's worse again. As with all things with the Chicago Bears. Kind of. We're only allowed to be happy for like nine days. <laughs> And then the football gods are like, you know what? We haven't fucked with Bears fans in a while. Let's get back to doing that. Today, as we record this, luckily it came out the day before the Bears episode came out and not the day of, Tevin Jenkins is apparently on the trade block. We'll we'll begin there before we get to all the actual starter news. Tevin has not been in practice for four days straight. There's been talk that he was injured. You know, potentially it has something to do with the back flaring up again and then There were some more reports and people coming out with, well, he's not getting along with the coaching staff. And then we get word that he's on the trade block, apparently, from Ian Rappaport, so you know it's real. Kind of gives a little bit more context to me that he wasn't at practice, not because of an injury thing, but because the team didn't want him getting hurt at practice because they didn't want to tank his trade value. Four days go by, nobody's biting, so they put the word out that he's on the block. At this point, once you do that, once... Once there's public reports that somebody's available for trade, especially a second-round pick, a top 40 pick from a year ago, we're looking at very little compensation that's going to come back the other way towards Chicago. So at this point, any way you slice it, this pick is not looking great for the Bears. What I don't understand or don't know is, was this an injury problem? Was this a fit with the coaching staff problem? A work ethic issue, an attitude like I don't, I don't know what went wrong here, but clearly something went wrong because how often do teams all but give up on a top forty pick a year after they get drafted? Not even a full year after they get drafted. Like, what the hell? 
The answer is we don't know. And we want to be really clear about that. We don't know. We don't have inside information. Uh, I know lots of people that are close to the team. They don't know. Nobody knows if they're not in that building. And the people in the building are not saying to folks I know or probably most of the folks you read. Uh, they may be saying, but these things are pretty sensitive and nobody really knows. We just want to start with that. Nobody knows. It's not great either way because, and I'll just remind you, it's not one pick. You said giving up on a pick. It's two picks because they traded up to get Tevin Jenkins. So they gave up a second and a third. And they swapped a fifth and a sixth. I'm not worried about that. They gave up two picks for Tevin Jenkins. This was Ryan Pace's MO. He traded up often. He was sure about, quote unquote, his guys, and he would do whatever it was that he needed to to get them. And that meant usually bundling multiple picks. And it came back to bite him in the terms of not having a lot of great depth, having an older team. And this is one last parting gift from Ryan Pace. He bundled a couple of picks. It looked like a really good move at the time. You and I both loved Tevin Jenkins pre-draft. We loved his film. We loved his attitude. We loved his potential as a starting tackle in the NFL, period. There were concerns more so after the draft than before, at least in terms of what we heard about injury. That, unfortunately, came to fruition last year. Tevin had an injured back. He never really practiced hard, and then they shut him down. He ended up getting procedure to fix his back. He ended up coming back at the end of the year, which was a little bit, I don't want to say unique, but a little bit different. A lot of times, again, you have a high pick that has a delicate surgery on a back. They're like, nope, you're just you're shut down for the whole year. No, they brought him back at the end of the year in what was a lost campaign. It was a lost cause. But he does have film, and it's not bad. He made mistakes, but he also showed growth and potential. So this is not a he got on the field and he can't play. Like he got on the field and he showed that he could play, that he needed work, but that he could play, that there was something there to work with. And that's what you're talking about with a young talent. There's something there to work with. So it's not that there's nothing there to work with. There is something there to work with, but there's also something else because you just don't do this. Now, back to the picks. Ryan Poles don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Those weren't his picks. He didn't yeah. spend them. It's a sunk cost. So if there's any friction or any reason to believe that Tevin's not a fit with the program going forward, he will get rid of him right now because he has gotten rid of everybody that was a leftover from the old regime that was not going to benefit this team, not this year, but next year. And if he has reason to believe from his coaches or from his interactions with the player that Tevin Jenkins for some reason is not going to be a benefit to the Bears, he doesn't care about those picks. Let's be super clear about that. He's going to clear the decks. He has shown the willingness to do that, even when it wasn't necessarily in the best short-term interest of the team. Now, I look at Tevin Jenkins, I say, here's a talented guy based on his film last year and his college tape that could help this team in the future so something else is going on here something else has to be really wrong and it's not that he's injured because if he was injured they wouldn't be trying to move him they wouldn't say oh he's busted they would sign him on an injury settlement and they would get him off the roster that way that's not what this is this is a disagreement about something whether it's fit with the scheme listening to the coaching staff following their advice 
there have been leaks about immaturity. I'm not going to go anywhere near that because that's way too close to questioning a guy's character or work ethic for me. I've never met Tevin Jenkins. Neither have I met the coaching staff. So I'm not going to get into that report. But where there is smoke, and there is a shitload of smoke on this right now, there is fire. There is something going on there. We may never know what it is, but it is absolutely happening. And Tevin Jenkins at this point, now that they made it public, is moving away from the Bears. If Tevin Jenkins stays, he's going to be like suspended without pay or something. He's not going to be near this team. So at this point, no matter what the compensation, and that's the part you're going to have to swallow on real hard, Bears fans, it doesn't matter what they get back. It matters at this point that they move him, and they will move him. And it's probably going to be at max, and this hurts, plug yours, if you don't like it, a fifth. Can you believe that I willingly lost $30,000 making a film room on a guy who started two games for the Bears? Can you believe that shit? No, no comment. Dot him. Dot him. Dot him. Dot him. Fucking hell, man. No, it's a mess. I just, it's a mess. We I, both I just, love this player. We thought that this guy was going to be a fixture, regardless of coaching staff. He was scheme. one of my favorite players in the draft. Period. Not arguing. Period. Any position. Not I was arguing. ecstatic when the Bears got him. That I almost, almost didn't care that they used an extra pick because I was like, well, they got Tevin. Come on. Like, what could be better? And to go from there to here in less than a year is strange to unthinkable. say unthinkable at the time yeah. at least it was unthinkable yeah. now we're like you know who knows but that knows. you know this is almost a, a great argument for why the draft you can do everything right in terms of putting in the work watching a player you know understanding the measurables and the skill set that third third of the equation which is everything else the the personal human element of the evaluation. You and I don't get access to that. So whether it's some sort of disagreement with the coaching staff, which who knows what that's about, or a medical thing, which again, you and I don't get access to that either. We didn't even know he had a back issue till after the trip. Nope. You know, that is almost the most important part of the entire evaluation and it's not even the most uh, voluminous part. It's just, it's almost like a little afterthought. Like you go to the combine to do medical checks uh, and do interviews. And yet those medical checks with the doctors and those interviews and the background that you do on them might matter more than all the actual on-field work. So it just sucks, man, because, you know, average Joes like us just don't really see it coming. But I'm sure there's a lot of people around the league that are, thinking today like oh yeah i could have told you that was gonna happen and it's like well shit (laughs) wish i'd known wish i'd known yeah but there's other changes here as well like literally why i said it was bad because after the draft people were still saying like hey there's not a presumptive starter right guard they're pretty pretty good at center they signed lucas patrick that was pretty good left tackle was a question but there was a lot of candidates white hair was solid and then right tackle would be whoever was, you know, the second runner up in the in the tackle. So we, we kind of know what's going on here. And then it got better. And we'll talk about a couple of signings. Uh, Riley Reef at left tackle. And Mike Schofield 
uh, comes in as the presumptive starter right guard. And we look at that line and we go, cool, Reef, Whitehair, Patrick, Schofield, and whomever wins the battle of all these players at right tackle, that's that's a pretty good, like, pro line. Like, that's a, you know, top 20-ish line, like at Which, 20. by bear standards, just being below average is awesome. So much better <laughs> than last year's line if you look at that line left to right. And you're like, awesome. And, you know, we've still got Reef. Whitehair really hasn't changed. Lucas Patrick breaks his thumb in training camp, which is a bummer for a center. We're not sure if there's any ligament damage. He's going to have surgery. The best projection is that he's back and does not miss any games that count. I think that's probably a little ambitious. He might miss a game or two. I'm still okay with that. That's fine, but it's a bummer. He's missing time and reps and camp and snap cadence and all that. So uh, that's the sort of, it got better, <laughs> and then it got worse part again. Right guard, Schofield is now up running with the ones after getting warmed up, and then it looks like Larry Borum, who we talked about in the episode a little bit later on, is going to be the right tackle, but we really hoped that Tevin was going to compete for that spot and win it because that is his spot from college. That is where he excelled. The Bears decided to move him to left last year and then back to right for those snaps that he played. It He was a fixture, and now he's on the trade block. So it was bad, it got better, and now it kind of feels like it got worse again. Now, Larry Borum might be a fine starter at right tackle. He showed some promise there last year. Patrick will eventually come back healthy, we hope. The surgery will go well and everything. Schofield a lot of starting experience, way more than anybody they had in camp at right guard. So that's pretty good too. Whitehair hopefully will return to form from last year where he had a down year, but he was trying to fix everything on every side of him. And that doesn't work out. You just end up missing assignments. Uh, and then Reef, a lot of snaps as a starter. He's a very reasonable contract for a left tackle that we were talking about that, about that before recording this, that you know, he's going to be max $10 million base value. It's, it's is, very incentive-laden where the right. likely to be earned, which is likely probably going to be tied to snap count, is up to $10 million. And then I think there's an unlikely to be earned bonus of $2.5 million if he makes the Pro Bowl, which if he makes the Pro Bowl, that means the Bears spent $12.5 million on a left tackle that went to the Pro Bowl. So that's still great. <laughs> so it's a, it's a reasonable contract, like you mentioned. Yeah, so, you know, for Bears fans listening to this, wherever it gets inserted in the episode, take heart. Like, Reef, Whitehair, Patrick when he comes back healthy, Schofield, and whomever, if it's Borum at right tackle, that's still a pretty good line. It doesn't, it feels like a lot of roller coaster and ups and downs, but that's still a decent starting NFL line. Much better than what the Bears put out most of last season in some total. Like, left tackle is down center is up most other positions are variable overall those five when patrick comes back healthy that's a that's a line you can work with for this year and reasonably expect justin fields to stay upright most weeks so in total it'll be okay but man there have been some bummer pieces of news between patrick breaking his thumb and now the tevin you know being on the trade block for unknown reasons just feel like kind of gut punches to what could have been so mm, i guess this is take your lumps and roll with it and think it's still going to be better than last year when it comes out in the wash 
I just not to not to drive the point home too much, but so you know how they traded up with with Carolina to get to thirty nine for the Tevin pick. You're gonna do, you do know, this to me. Do you know what player got taken with the pick that Chicago originally owned? JOK. <laughs> That's just mean. That's just gratuitous and mean. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. Shit I happens. Know. And this shit happens why. a lot more when you're a Chicago sports fan. <laughs> yes, that's true. And this is why we say multiple swings, multiple bites at the apple, multiple lottery picks. Like why I was saying before this year's draft, trade down, trade draft. And he did. Ryan Poles traded down in the back half of the draft and took a bunch of swings because you never know which one's going to work out. But if you trade up, it's got to work out. It has to work out. And hopefully you'll get the answer as a yes, it's working out 10 months later and not we're trading him away for a day three pick. But anyway, just Ryan Pace doing Ryan Pace things. Last uh, all right. parting gift from Ryan Pace. <sighs> Let's roll the rest of the episode. I'm going to I'm gonna go wallow in my sorrows a little longer. Fair enough. Happy Bears Day, EJ. At long last, we are finally here. Almost 75% of the way through the uh, the team preview series. We've finally come to our uh, beloved, sometimes unfortunately beloved, Chicago Bears. They have had a very, very interesting offseason, to say the least. Uh, not necessarily a whole lot of things to be excited for in 2022 but plenty to be excited about in 2023 and beyond so we're going to do our best to explain exactly what is going on in Chicago and whether or not Justin Fields has uh, potentially three months left to live on this planet we'll see but before we get to all that EJ buddy how you doing how you feeling what are you drinking I'm pumped I'm there's we only get to do this once in the whole preview series uh it's one that both of us look forward to i got my jeff dickerson shirt on and i've got irish coffee in the mug and i am i'm ready because i i have assigned the place in my mind that i'm going to enjoy this bear season because i know what it's for and i know what it's about and i have realistic expectations for that and I think there's some hidden stuff to talk about on this roster for Bears fans that are feeling a little bit hopeless or whatever else that are that are really interesting stories to watch, really cool players to watch develop. And yeah, if you're expecting Chicago to try and, you know, contest for the Super Bowl this year, yeah, you're going to be disappointed. That's that's OK. <laughs> but if you're a Bears fan and you still want to watch football this year, uh, maybe if you listen to this episode, we'll have some directions to point you in that can hold your interest and, you know, storylines to follow that will really set the team up for future success. So I'm, I'm excited. I will say the bears in general are a pretty realistic fan base. I mean, usually out of all the fan bases I interact <laughs> with on Twitter, again, I'm comparing them to other fan bases. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if, if the bears are bad and you say the bears are bad, generally they're going to be like, yep, I agree. You got us there. Whereas, I mean, some fan bases, they could be staring down the barrel of four and 13 and be like, okay, no, you just don't understand. The vision has yet to come together, you know? Right. So I'd say on the whole, Bears, pretty realistic fan base as far as 
NFL fan bases can go. But uh, we do unfortunately have to do a little bit of a 2021 recap before we move on to everything good that has happened since the end of the season. Overall record, 6-11. and Some might consider that uh, overperforming, all things considered. So I, I think 6-11 and was kind of right down the pipe of expectations for me. Uh, they were third in the division, miraculously. <laughs> uh, home record of three and five, road record of three and six. So they were kind of equal opportunity, disappointing whether they were in Chicago or not. And in their last five games, they did finish two and three, roughly on par with the rest of the season. I'll have to admit, going into last year, I definitely did not think Nagy was as big of a problem as he was. I knew he was a problem. Let me hmm. put that straight. I knew he was a problem. The percentage of problem between Nagy and Trubisky in years past, I don't think I assigned enough of that percentage to Nagy. I truly thought that it was more of a quarterback issue than a coaching issue. Not that Trubisky's like amazing or anything like that. but And then we kind of learned some things about what was actually going on in the building and we're like, oh, Okay, maybe Nagy was a little bit more of a problem than uh, than I expected or talked about this time last year. So, kind of learned my lesson on that one is, uh, you know, maybe just because you're not hearing about it doesn't mean that the bad things aren't happening. But that being said, boy, the new Bears, uh, the new Bears front office and coaching staff, we're real excited about. And we just hope that none of those bad things are still happening. But yeah, I uh, I have a little bit of egg on my face because I definitely did not realize that Nagy was as ill-equipped as he actually was you should listen to your elders <laughs> well uh, you wanted him fired like three years ago <laughs> no no it was a year and a half ago to be completely fair so last season was uh, we talk about other teams we talk about lost seasons last season was a lost season for me uh on my other podcast bears over beers jb and i talked about this in december of uh 2021 and said uh, or actually it would have been December of 2020, my bad, in the middle of the season before last, and said, look, this isn't going anywhere. This combination is is just sort of grinding to a slow halt, and it's better to rip the Band-Aid off now, change direction from both Pace and Nagy. A lot of people said we were too early. A lot of people said, no, no, you got to give him another year, you got to give him this, you got to give him that. And, and both JB and I were convinced, no, you don't. No, this we know we've seen the true colors and some of that came through when Nagy sort of threw up his hands in frustration and handed the offense to Bill Lazor and suddenly for three games they put up almost 30 points a game or over 30 points a game and yeah they were beating up on Patsy's but they looked like a competent offense and then he went oh okay I can drive this thing and took it back and drove it straight into the ground and we were like see this is this is what we were saying they decided they took a week, the Bears, that is, after the season, and just sat on their hands. They said, we'll, we'll get you a decision soon. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing. They basically sat on their hands for about six days, and then they just basically came back and said, we're going to run it back. We believe. And everybody was like, how? In what? And they were like, we, we believe. We have faith. We're just going to run it back. And at that point, I assigned you know, the next year, which was then last year, and said, nah, they're not. It's not happening. There's not going to be some miraculous recovery. Yes, Ryan Pace ends up with the star-crossed series of events that land him Justin Fields. But other than that, 
pretty much a complete loss for that entire extra year that they were granted. And yeah, all the things start to come out, the cracks start to show, and you see just how dysfunctional on offense this team has been for a very long time. And yeah, it's good that that's gone. So now we can move on to a, a fresh slate and and maybe, maybe, just maybe see a functional NFL offense in Chicago for the first time in a long time. I will accept below average at this point. That's what I'm hoping. If you can just be like 19th, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Because the yep. defense theoretically should be good enough where, again, you you know, you could whip, rip off like six, seven wins with that, something like that. If you just have a below average offense and not something that's a complete hot dumpster fire, I'm okay with it. Um, I, I, I will say... Nagy the coach versus Nagy the person. That's one conversation that I want people to kind of to kind of handle differently sometimes because towards the end it did get pretty toxic, mm-hmm. and you know you had him getting like booed at his kids' football game and stuff like that. And it's like, guys, he's a bad coach. He's not a bad human. You know, I, I wish people would. And this goes for all fan bases. I wish people would kind of separate that out a little bit. Like, I had the same feelings about Bill O'Brien, where they fired him a year too late. I don't think Bill O'Brien's a bad person. I just didn't want him coaching my football team. So that's one thing I I will struggle with. I hope that fans slice the onion a little bit thinner. And I think we, this is part of what we do. We try and give fans more looks and more understanding about how all of these parts work together. Because even more so than the person, like nobody should be getting slashed as a person unless they do something personally terrible. Coaching your football team poorly is not personally terrible. You might think it is, but that's just you projecting. Even a thinner slice with Nagy. So all the stuff about booing him at his kids football game and stuff, that's that's Bush League. Don't don't do that. Just be better. Nagy the head coach and we talk about this pretty often on this podcast. Uh, the CEO type, he was actually really good at that. As a leader, people responded to him and he rallied the locker room and he was able to take a pulse of what's going on. So Nagy the sort of CEO head coach was actually good all the club dub stuff, he he was able to hold people together. Nagy, the play designer, eh. Nagy, the play (laughs) caller, no. You don't want that on your football team. He does not have the knack to string together. It's art and science, right? You need to know which plays work well, in which situations, and then you just, it's a feel thing. You have to understand, look, we tried this before, we're going to do it now because... He does not have that gift. He might be great at drawing up plays on paper in a vacuum. As a guy with a headset on the sideline on Sunday, he is an abysmal play caller. He's horrible. He cannot string together offensive momentum. But as a CEO coach, he was actually pretty good, but he just was never able to let that go, and that was his downfall. That's why he's back in Kansas City. I will say the the power structure they have now, though, transitioning over to that is kind of the exact opposite of what they had under Nagy. If we're again, if we're just talking about the the pure football side of things cuz Matt Eberflus is not going to be involved in defensive play calling at all. He is going to be more of that CEO type and stick to that. Alan Williams, his defensive coordinator who is the DB coach and Indy with him, is going to be the play caller. 
And since they worked closely together before, I don't really think there's going to be any problem with Eberflus stepping in and calling the defense. He's just going to focus on being a head coach like Nagy should have done. <laughs> um, on the other side, on the offensive ball, Luke Getz, or offensive side of the ball, Luke Getze at offensive coordinator, um, you know, coming over from Green Bay. We assume that they're going to run some type of Packers-ish type system that heavily relies on play action and running the ball as much as humanly possible. And, you know, a lot of 12 personnel really just heavily relying on bigger personnel packages and, you know, kind of forcing safeties to come down. So you get one high looks and then you're hitting all these deep crosses to Mooney, all the typical West coast zone run type shit that we're used to seeing. Uh, the offensive line coach, Chris Morgan, uh, did that with Shanahan specifically for a long time when he was his offensive line coach in Atlanta and he worked with the offensive line in Washington when Shanahan was there. So, like, we know what type of offense they're probably trying to build here. And I, I think that that would, uh, that would be a perfect complement to hopefully keep Justin Fields alive. Uh, at GM, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Ryan Poles, who has the unfortunate task of slashing and burning this roster to the core to deal with a lot of the bad or unfortunate financial holes that this organization was dug into over the last few years when they were trying to make a run with pieces that just weren't weren't going to be good enough to make a run with. Um, so they, they absolutely dumped every ounce of money, dead money, into this year that they could to make room for next year. So we'll, we'll see what he does with that next year when he has a whole bunch of resources to work with again. And then last but not least, uh, Richard Hightower, year one special teams coordinator. I believe he came over from San Francisco as their special teams coordinator, if memory serves. He was there for like five or six years or so at special teams over there. Another guy with a Kyle Shanahan connection. So um, overall at the top, I like what they put together. A CEO type head coach, a, uh, a guy... And Getze, who should be running an offensive system that has been proliferated throughout the league and seems to work everywhere it goes. Uh, and then you have a defensive coordinator that is intimately familiar with what his head coach wants to do on defense and a special teams coordinator that has a lot of experience as well. Uh, no complaints for me, even though all these guys are in year one. Uh, I, I really like the staff they put together. I'm excited to see what they can do, all of them. We've already seen a lot of what Ryan Poles can do. And... In a lot of ways, his job when he arrived in Chicago, his sort of first 90 days in office, if you want to look at it that way, was being the guy that walks behind the elephant and scoops up because Ryan Pace just spread crap contracts all over the place without a lot of thought to the future, any thought to the future. He was just trying to save his job, and it showed he did a lot of financially irresponsible things. And Ryan Poles, I hoped, uh, again, this is something we talked about, Bears over Beers, I hoped whoever came in, it turns out that it was Ryan Poles, was going to see all that for what it was and not try and mitigate that or, or it, you know, just pull the Band-Aid off and get to it and clean and clean and clean and clean till you get down to the sort of bare floors and start over. And he did that. It became very clear very quickly that anything that Ryan Pace touched that hadn't shown any benefit, which was most things, unfortunately, were going to be left at the curb for somebody else to pick up. And he did it in rapid succession. We'll talk about that when we get to the free agency losses. He did a lot of it. His primary focus for his first 
two, two and a half months uh, in the chair was get this gone, get this, you know, ripped down to the studs or even the foundation. And again, clear all the money we can this year, pack all the money, all the bad money into this year. We're not putting one bad cent into next year that we don't have to. And he's very effective that way. And that was a brave thing to do. It was a necessary thing to do. And you should be given credit. It's not a fun thing to do. It's not a sexy thing to do. Fans aren't going to love him for it because a lot of talent had to go out the door. But he, it needed to be done. Make no mistake. If that had not been done, nothing else going forward probably would have worked very well. Or it would have taken a lot longer. Now it accelerates the process and they can start the rebuild really as quickly as possible. So not a fun job. Kudos to him for doing that. He's made some other moves we'll talk about that I'm a little iffy on. Eberflus, I hope he takes that sort of CEO role. Getsy, I'm extremely excited about because he looks proficient. <laughs> he looks like he knows what he's doing. We'll see uh, when the lights come on. Alan Williams, again, really close working relationship You know, with the head coach in the previous stop knows the system inside and out so it feels like a very competent staff it is a lot of change and fans are gonna have to brace for that it's not all gonna gel at once you know week one but it should look better just because of removing the level of incompetence on offense from last year and getting something like you said that's just mid-class functional is gonna look light years better so that i'm excited for uh, in terms of the assistance underneath all these guys, because again, it's, you know, it's okay. First time being an NFL offensive coordinator, first time being a coordinator uh, on defense, first year head coach, a lot of, a lot of inexperience in these types of roles at the coordinator and above position. In terms of the assistance under them though, I, I lost count with how many guys have double digit years of NFL experience. They have a very, very experienced position coach uh grouping here notable coaches are really interesting in chicago because there's a lot of guys that have had multiple years of experience with different position groups so not a lot of guys that have like just been coaching running backs for 20 years a lot of guys that worked with linebackers and then defensive line and then they moved on to safeties and everywhere they've gone the theme for all these assistant coaches who come in who again just been sort of like right below that level of the bright lights is folks under their tutelage have succeeded and i'll be pulling out a bunch of examples but we'll start on offense tyke tolbert the pass game coordinator and wide receiver coach 19 years of nfl coaching experience as you said giants broncos panthers bills and cardinals he himself was a wide receiver at lsu in his college days chris morgan who you mentioned the offensive line coach a lot of experience in the shanahan system 14 seasons as an nfl line coach steelers falcons seahawks washington and the raiders has coached in two super bowls Jim Dre, the tight ends coach, he's a former NFL tight end himself. Seventh round pick. Always love these guys who are UDFAs and seventh round picks who have long careers. Played eight seasons with the Cardinals, Browns, Bills, and 49ers. Brings that player perspective and a bunch of coaching after that. Defense and special teams. This is where it really gets into look at all the people under these folks tutelage who've succeeded. So Dave Borgonzi, the linebacker coach, 11 years of NFL coaching experience with the Colts, Bucks, and Cowboys. Keep those teams in mind. So most recently with the Colts under Eberflus, he's the guy that helped Darius Leonard and Bobby Okereke achieve the heights they have. So bringing that experience to now work with Roquan Smith and Nick Morrow, like 
this is a guy that is really key to the defensive success and has had great success. Again, Colts, but also worked with the Bucks linebacking core. Very good. Cowboys linebacking core, back when he was with them, also very good. Andre Curtis is the safeties coach for the Bears. 16 years worth of NFL coaching experience. <laughs> Here you go. Worked with the Legion of Boom in their prime. Sent Cam Chancellor, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, Shaquille Griffin, Jamal Adams, and Quandre Diggs all went to the Pro Bowl under his tutelage. So while he wasn't at the coordinator level, he was just a position coach. All of those guys have had success. He also helped coach Kenny Vaccaro to his all-rookie selection in 2013 when he was drafted by the Saints. Travis Smith, the defensive line coach, most recently with the Raiders. He's the guy that helped Max Crosby hit the heights he hit last year. Also, he used to coach linebackers with the Raiders, so he knows. Because, of course. <laughs> he knows new Bears edition Vincent Morrow. So when Vincent Morrow came up on the free agency list and, you know, presumably – uh, Ryan Poles and Eberflus said to him, hey, can you vouch for this guy? I'm sure Travis Smith said, oh, yeah, I worked with him for his first two years in Vegas. Like, that's a good dude. He's on the rise. Get him. Carlos Polk. This one's fun. Assistant special teams coach. So I remember Carlos Polk was a player, spent uh, seven seasons with the Chargers and one with the Cowboys as a linebacker, was an All-American at Nebraska in college. So Carlos Polk is now in the coaching business and an assistant special teams coach. So just more playing experience, more high-level experience in terms of roles all the way from special teams, offense, defense, multiple different position groups. You may not recognize a lot of these names. In fact, you probably don't right off at face value, but they've been there and they've helped some very successful units in the NFL go to Super Bowls, go to Pro Bowls. So I, I'm quietly excited about this assemblage of talent getting their time in the spotlight and seeing what they can do will all of them succeed no would i bet on a guy like dave borgonzi turning roquan smith into an absolute monster and getting him the recognition he deserves for being even more than he already is by the way he's already an all pro caliber guy (laughs) yeah and just hasn't seemed to be able to to break through on the perception front. If you look at his statistics, he's the second or third best middle linebacker in the league, and people are going to come at me and say, no, he's not, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I got some data I can show you that says, yeah, he's playing at that level. You can argue who's who's there, but he's been playing at that level, and people haven't been paying attention because the Bears have been bad. Now with Dave Borgonzi over him, I fully expect Roquan to have that season, the one we've been waiting for. And Lots of these other coaches as well. The offensive line, I bet a lot of the the miscommunication, a lot of the confusion we saw last year is gone. He's been in this system with a lot of different players. He understands what they're trying to achieve. He's going to communicate that. We're going to talk about in free agency. They brought in an experienced player in that system to help from the player side to say, no, no, this is what we need to do here. It's set up on paper to go fairly well and i'm excited to watch how all these units progress because it's full scale change special teams offense defense head coach gm all the way up like this is all fresh nobody survived so it will be fascinating to figure out who excels the quickest uh and i'm just i'm excited because there was a lot of dysfunction last year and again like you said even if it's all just mid-level function it's gonna look like a well-oiled machine comparatively (laughs) Uh, the one I'm most uh, most excited by personally for me is uh, Andre Curtis working with this relatively young secondary for the most part, other than one one guy. Uh, you know, Jalen Johnson going into his third year. 
Uh, Juquan Brisker's a rookie. Kyler Gordon's a rookie. Thomas Graham, you know, playing a more natural spot at nickel. And then you got Eddie at free safety. A- Andre Curtis, you know, in terms of when you think about, okay, he was in Seattle. Everybody's like, okay, so he's going to teach them how to play cover three. Not really. He was the defensive pass game coordinator the last three years where Seattle really started to do a lot more of the too high stuff that we see around the league. And also, he, we talk about how much they, they blitzed Jamal Adams. Well, again, who do you think was calling the blitzes with Jamal Adams? That was Andre Curtis. Uh, he was their defensive pass game coordinator. So when you know they said, hey, I need a pressure here, it's third and seven, he was the one who was calling it. And I think a, a big reason, we'll talk about this when we get to the draft, a big reason why they took Jaquan Brisker is because they saw what a big-ass, powerful safety like Jamal Adams could do for your pass rush. And I think they there's a decent chance they use Brisker the same way under Andre Curtis because I think if you have that kind of weapon, you might as well use it that way, in addition to Brisker also having coverage ability too. But I think that the whole notion that, oh, the, the DB coach is coming from Seattle, they're going to be more one high. Not necessarily. I think the... Mm-hmm the tendency for Chicago to be a too high team over the last several years, going back to when Fangio was defensive coordinator, I think that is alive and well. It will be intact under Curtis uh, and especially intact um, under Allen Williams. I'm really, really excited to see what they do with this young secondary. But I want to get to the slash and burn job that we mentioned with with Ryan Poles because – I thought that maybe we were going to hit the peak of roster deconstruction when we did the Giants episode uh, a couple of weeks ago at this point. I think the Bears might have them beat. Looking at the chart of everybody they quote-unquote lost, again, most of this was addition by subtraction. They were trying to free up money. They were trying to push all their dead cap, or at least as much as they humanly could, to this year. You know, they, they traded away and got whatever value they could out of some assets like Khalil Mack. You know, they let Akeem Hicks walk. The sheer amount of either good players that they couldn't afford anymore or just outright bad contracts that are now no longer on the books, it might actually be more than the Giants. Like, it is awe-inspiring. Jimmy Graham is gone. Danny Trevathan's gone. Tariq Cohen's gone. Tashawn Gibson's gone. Jason Peters. Alec Ogletree. Hicks, as I mentioned. Mack, as I mentioned. He's now a charger after that trade. Dion Bush, Eddie Goldman, Demir Bird, Bilal Nichols, Allen Robinson, Andy Dalton, Marquise Goodwin, James Daniels. That one actually really hurt. <laughs> that one really hurt me, but he's gone now too. This is like half the names. Yeah. It's a significant number of like not just guys that contribute and play a lot of snaps, but like starters, quality starters too. You know, some of them weren't playing to the level they had in years past because they just kind of didn't give a shit anymore. Cough, cough, Allen Robinson. But again, these are some really good players that are no, no longer with the organization um, because they quite frankly couldn't afford anybody. The roster was so bloated and expensive for lack of production and just like the Giants like the the parallels between what Gettleman did with the Giants and what Pace did with the Bears are remarkable because the amount of dollars for production that they wasted was incredible and they really had no other option but to either cut people trade people or let them walk and just take as much hit as much financial hit as they could this year 
get all the crap off the books and then go back next year, they really couldn't do anything else but that. So yeah, the roster looks bare and it looks broken and it looks terrible for the most part, but they really had no other way to do this thing. They really had to kind of stab themselves in the stomach this year in order to save themselves from death. Yeah, there's two contracts that illustrate what went on. So if you're not a Chicago fan or you don't pay attention to the contracts, because a lot of fans don't, I appreciate that. But there's two contracts that illustrate what happened in the late pace years, one on offense and one on defense. One is Nick Foles. Like, Nick Foles, the way he got to Chicago, what what Ryan Pace gave him, gave up a pick, and then gave him more guaranteed money, increased his salary, none of which he had to do. He could have just waited. Foles would have eventually been cut, and he could have you know, negotiated him a quote-unquote fair market deal. He didn't. He did all the bad things, poured into Nick Foles, never worked out. It's costing the Bears more money to not have Nick Foles on the roster this year. This is the telling move for Ryan Poles. Ryan Poles could have just swallowed hard and said, look, he's an emergency backup at best. It's, you know... There's no reason financially to cut him. Polls made it very clear. This is a demarcation, a line in the sand cut. He's like, no, we're going to cut him and we're going to take a financial hit to do that. It actually costs us more not to have him on the roster this year. So we don't get any playing value out of him at all. We just want him gone that badly. And they did. And that was the one that really told me that Ryan Poles was in the mode of, nope, nobody stays. They're all gone. I'm doing it all this year. Forget it. It's over. And I was actually encouraged by that. You might say, oh, that's fiscally irresponsible. Nick Foles wasn't going to give you anything this year anyways, folks. That's That that time is past. That boat has sailed. And the other one is Danny Trevathan, the extension. They gave Danny Trevathan a big money extension and put void years on the end of his deal as an aging linebacker, which is a position that takes damage and does not tend to perform real well over 30. Trevathan's had multiple knee surgeries. He was playing well when they paid him but they paid him for past performance not future performance and they loaded a ton of money he basically never played at that level again last year played very very little and it was a horrible contract basically they were saddled with that contract they had to do something about it again he's not going to give you very much on the field if anything but you're paying for him for another two to three years. Pulse is like, nope, we're going to get rid of him right now. We're going to accelerate all that money to right now. We're just going to eat it. And then 2023, we're going to have clean books. So those are just two of the examples of what Ryan Pace did to kind of try and the decisions he made at the end of his tenure, which weren't great for the Bears long term. In fact, they were pretty disastrous. And Ryan Pohl said, bar none, we're not keeping any of them. They're all going by. And it was necessary. They had to do it. They they have no other way in order to set themselves up for future success other than to give themselves an ungodly amount of money to work with next year. Hope that Justin Fields, with a vastly undergunned roster around him, shows enough to make free agents think, okay, there's something there. I'll go there if Chicago overpays me by a couple million because then Chicago inevitably will have to overpay people by a couple million. But it, there, there has to be the combination of promising young quarterback plus tons of money. They didn't have the tons of money until they slashed and burned, so that was step number one. Now they just have to hope that Justin survives this season and looks good, and then 2023 is where we attack this thing. You know, That's when it's, okay, we're throwing every pick that we can at 
you know, at a really, really talented draft class that's coming out next year. If they end up with a really high draft pick, they can, you know, mortgage one of these young quarterbacks to get even more picks and obviously spending, God, what, like $100 million or whatever they're going to have available to them. It's real close, yeah. High 90s as of yeah. like a month ago. I haven't Before we even do restructures, by the way. like Yeah, because it looked like a slot machine. Trying to keep up with Ryan Pohl's total for 2023, it the wheels have just been spinning and so it was like oh it's it's going to be 40 it's going to be 60 it's going to be 70 it's going to be 85 it's going to be 93 like it's probably over 100 million without restructures at this point that's a significant amount of change and it lets you know yep they're trying to do exactly that they're trying to put together a roster they can play with this year eat all the dead money and come into 2023 guns blazing and say we are gonna we're gonna load up around our hopefully now successful young quarterback who's played in a you know has gotten all the camp snaps has played in a modern nfl offensive system with adequate line protection and people are gonna see that this is a team ready to ready to have its glow up right uh and i i do also respect the when you look at their retentions as well as third-party signings we'll kind of do them together because i think the the general theme is is similar I respect the discipline to knowing that they have a whole bunch of space next year, not kind of blow their available load too early and, you know, sign somebody this year and then kind of push the money off into next year. Like they really, in terms of the signings for this year and retentions for this year, just kept it cheap. The most expensive guy, quote unquote expensive, they brought in was Justin Jones at $6 million a year. Uh, from the Chargers, and he was their second choice at 3-Tech. They were trying to get Larry Ogunjobi, who would have been their most expensive guy, and then the the injury issue caused that to go away or the deal to get canceled because they, they didn't clear him on the physical, which sucked because then he immediately got picked up by another team who was gladly like, sure, yeah, we'll take Larry Ogunjobi. He's a great 3-Technique. So that kind of sucked, but you know, you know his replacement – then became the most expensive guy that they that they signed in Justin Jones, who's okay as like a rotational interior defensive lineman. I don't necessarily think he's starting quality, but on this team he's going to have to, which is somewhat unfortunate for the Bears. But, hey, it's going to be that kind of year is what it is. They're doing what they can. Um, DeAndre Houston Carson, they re-signed to be their special teams ace. Uh, Sam Mustafer to be probably a – backup swing center guard-ish type guy, but he costs less than a million. Again, they're trying to go cheap here. Charles Snowden, who we liked a lot as more of a, a, you know, the tall, lanky outside linebacker type of a Leonard Floyd type mold. I do not, I'm not trying to say he's Leonard Floyd. He's not. But in an alternate universe, they would hope that he would become 70% of Leonard Floyd, which again, for $700,000, if you can be even half of Leonard Floyd, I'll take that. That's good value. Um, and then for the rest of the third-party additions, Byron Pringle uh, to round out a, again, very undergunned receiving core. al Muhammad to be a rotational edge for them. Lucas Patrick likely going to be the starting center. Nicholas Moreau to be uh, likely the starting linebacker next to Roquan. Tavon Young, when he's healthy, is an excellent nickel, but health has usually been a pretty big issue for him uh during his time in baltimore i think between the two acls and the neck injury i think he missed like almost three seasons out of four in baltimore but again when he's on the field he's a great nickel for them 
So he'll be competing with Thomas Graham for that role, I would imagine. And then uh, Dane Cruikshank to be the third safety anti-tight end big body guy, which is a role that we've talked about for several teams at this point. And it's a role that's becoming a lot more common in the NFL is if you can get a DB who's like one job is to handle hybrid wide receiver tight ends, that's that's what Dane Crookshank's going to be for them. So, again, everything's cheap, <laughs> sometimes dirt cheap. Lucas Patrick was $4 million. Justin Jones was $6 million. Everybody else was, I mean, uh, I think Nick, Nicholas Moreau at $3 million was probably the most they were willing to spend at linebacker. So it's very similar to what happened with the Giants. I respect it. I think considering the limitations they had, they did the best job they possibly could. I can split hairs and say I would have liked other players in similar spots. Uh, they didn't go for the same amount of money, which is really telling. So Byron Pringle, I think Byron Pringle's a fine player. I liked him coming out. I liked him in Kansas City as a third or fourth wide receiver, as a sort of de facto number one because you don't have one. Mm, I don't like him for that. He's got better size than a lot of people think. He's just over 4 million, 4.1, and he blocks his ass off. And that's going to be really important. If you look at the Packers offense and you look at guys like Alan Lazard, they yep. are big-bodied blockers. And, yeah, they catch some balls, and they're capable of doing that, but they play a very important role in the run game. Byron Pringle does that. Is he super exciting as a 1A alpha? No. No, he's not. Is he a capable NFL wide receiver for only $4 million? Yeah. Would I have rather have had, like, Russell Gage? Yeah. Russell Gage went for $10 million freaking dollars. You or could just have... actually Alan Lazard, who I think was also a free agent. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> sure, I would have loved to keep Alan Robinson. It was never going to happen after what occurred with him in the previous regime. Is he going to tear it up as a Ram? Yes. Alan Robinson is going to rebound to form so hard it's going to snap your head back. He's going to look amazing all over again. Was he ever going to stay in Chicago? He wasn't. So the best they could with what they had is a really good theme here. There were other receivers. I like. I wish they made a run at DJ Chark. DJ Chark went for over $10 bucks. He went to a division rival. Like They weren't willing to throw $10 million at a receiver this year, so they got the best they could. Byron Pringle represents that. Is he awesome? No. Is he going to do good work in this offense? He probably is. Lucas Patrick, great choice, gets his hand-picked choice to come play center, to help players learn the new system, has center guard versatility, which is great down the road. If the Bears go out and draft some highfalutin center that they think is awesome, they could slide Patrick over. He's shown that versatility in Green Bay, as many of their linemen have. Nicholas Morrow, I think, is a player on the come up. I think he is ready for a really good moment. I think they got him at a value. I think he is ascending. He doesn't have to be the guy. That's Roquan's job. Is he going to be better than the guy he's replacing in Alec Ogletree? I think he might. I think a lot of people would say name recognition wise, no, no, that's not going to happen for multiple reasons. I think it might. And Tavon Young and Dane Kirkshank, I'll just handle them together because if they're your starters, you're like, great. If they're healthy, both of them, they both struggled with health. They don't have to be either one of them. We can have Thomas Graham Jr. at nickel and we can have Tavon Young as the super nickel backup, right? That is so much better depth than anything you had last year. And Dane Kirkshank, the one thing he was really good at in Tennessee was being that athletic tight end eraser. He's got size. He's physical. He loves doing it. And I actually called this one on Twitter. I said, hey, I, you know, if I was the Bears, I would 
out of this group, I would give Dane Crookshank a call. Dane Crookshank was like the 28th ranked safety on that list. And then he got signed about a week later. A lot of people were like, what are you talking about? I was like, they don't have that guy on the roster. Eddie's not good at that. Brisker was a Jaquan Brisker was a dream yet. He hadn't been drafted. And they went out and signed Dane Crookshank for $1.1 million and said, man, if you're healthy, you can do that. You could be our third safety that's the heavy around the line and just mash athletic tight ends, of which there are plenty in the NFC North. So he's going to get plenty of work if he's healthy. Great value signing by Poles and the staff. The main thing I'm I'm really interested in at this point is who's going to be starting as the boundary receiver that's also really good at blocking because now they have two of them with Byron Pringle and uh, Nikhil Harry, who they just traded like a 2024 seventh round pick, right? It was basically a nothing asset. Yeah. Um, you know, again, they're they're on the hunt for their new Alan Lazard because Alan Lazard was the big body blocking receiver in Green Bay that occasionally would go catch a high cross or something for like a 30-yard gain and then go back to blocking again. One of those two will work out. I'm not entirely sure which one will start over the other for that particular role. If I Pringle. had to guess, because he <laughs> makes more money, they, they they think that Pringle's better. But again, can't hurt just to spend a nothing asset on Harry and see if see if something's still there. And uh, speaking of draft capital, by the way, uh, they they really did their best to maximize their existing assets and trade and get as many extra picks as they could. Cause again, they have to fill out this roster. It's I continue to maintain that it is remarkable how similar the giants off season was to the bears off season because the giants did the same thing. They had like 11 draft picks and the bears have three, six, nine, 11 draft picks as well. So virtually identical off seasons, young quarterbacks, bad expensive rosters, trying to replace talent from top to bottom though i think the the general theme of of this bears draft class was get just good players at the top and then take as many swings at offensive line as we can humanly muster and hope that we can get a decent starting five out of it yeah i've been banging the table all pre-draft season people what do you think the bears should do what do you think the bears should do And my undying refrain was trade down get more picks it's a super deep draft class they're going to be worth more than they usually are in a given year the bears have so many needs after tearing their roster down like get capital get capital their first pick comes around they stick and stay they pick a player good player we'll talk about him in a second second pick comes around they pick another good player not necessarily at a position of super high need Chicago fans start to panic. Wait, wait, wait. What's he doing? He's not trading down. He didn't pick who I wanted. He didn't get a wide receiver. They get to their third pick. Finally pick a wide receiver. Not the one everybody wanted. <laughs> now the full-on panic is happening. during the, I, We heard it all during the draft. We were doing the draft live cast. Like, people were like, what is going on? He didn't trade down. He didn't pick the guys I wanted. Like, what is he doing? He's over his head. And then the receiver they took was Valus Jones out of all right. of them. <laughs> yeah, didn't didn't grab the one that everybody wanted because everybody had their idea that it had to be an outside receiver. It had to be a number one. And if it wasn't that, it was a failure. So there was a lot of preconceived notion about that. I certainly helped build that. I was like, trade down. And I was nervous too. I was like, he only has a few picks left. They have way more holes. And then the trade downs start. And he trades down and down 
and down and down and pushes a whole bunch of assets into the bottom of the draft and takes a ton of swings. A, an approach that I have advocated for for a long time. Was happy to see him do it. it was a little bit later than I would have done it. I would have used one of the higher round picks to do that. And we can go through the players now and talk about what he did. But overall, in terms of draft strategy, it was a good one. Round two, pick 39. One of my favorite cornerbacks in the draft, Kyler Gordon from right up the road in Washington. Instant outside bookend to Jalen Johnson. They needed it. They didn't have it. They somehow limped through last year without it. They just said, nope, good player on the board, high need. We like it. It'll help stabilize the defense. I have nothing but good things to say about Kyler Gordon. Super excited about his future as a Chicago Bear. Next pick, also in the second round, pick 48. This is the one that threw a few people off. They go and get Jaquan Brisker, the safety from Penn State. Jaquan Brisker, awesome player, amazing player. And the Bears have a pretty good track record picking safeties out of Penn State. <laughs> Brisker's better than the last one, which is Adrian Amos. And Adrian Amos has been to a bunch of Pro Bowls. Like, he was very good. Jaquan Brisker has better range. He's super physical. One of the most versatile in terms of going forward or backward safeties in this draft. Lots of safeties are only good around the line or better in the deep third. He played, his number of snaps there in college was almost equal, and they didn't have a starting safety, like none besides Eddie. Like, it was an open hole on the roster with what Poles had done. So it was a huge need. Good player was there. I realized that a lot of people said, oh, safety, not a great value in the second round. What's he doing? Try and get past that and look at Jaquan Brisker, the player. And you mentioned earlier in the show some of the role you think he's going to play in this defense. They're going to use him. He's athletic. He's physical. He's going to be a good player. He and Gordon really changed the face of the secondary. And you might say, but offense, it's all about Justin. Can't disagree, but don't underrate Kyler and Jaquan Brisker because you just wanted an outside wide receiver. Round three, pick 71. They finally get around to addressing wide receiver. It's Valus Jones Jr., the wide receiver from Tennessee, who spent a lot of time at USC before he transferred. Much has been made about his age. I'll just say that. He's not a whole lot older than a lot of people that have been very successful. He's going to play the role they expect him to play in this offense, which is an inside receiver, not an outside receiver. And if you accept that and understand what he can do and what he brings you on special teams as well, it's a fine pick. In the third round, I realize it was only the third pick, but third round, it is a fine pick. This offense didn't have that role. It's not like they're you know, picked somebody that was going to double up with Darnell Mooney. Like they needed somebody to play slot, to be physical, to be dynamic. And Valus Jones is a good one. And they vetted it with Justin Fields before the draft. Like Eberflus sat down with Justin Fields and showed him a bunch of receiver tape and said, what do you think? You know, green light, the ones that you're excited about. And Justin Fields said, I like that guy to Valus Jones, which is one of the reasons they picked him. <laughs> you know why, by the way? Why he every time or why he liked him because because he saw Valus Jones get the ball like 0.2 seconds after the ball was snapped a whole lot and still get 15 yards of it out of it and Justin's like oh I can get yards without dying yeah give me that guy that looks familiar I understand that <laughs> offense yeah unfortunately that was a reality but Valus Jones give him a chance forget about the age thing let's see what he does on the field in his proper role as a number three receiver coming out of the slot and playing special teams he's good there as well. They skip round four. They get down to pick uh, round five, pick 168. And here's where they start their run of offensive linemen. Best one of the lot, in my opinion, Braxton Jones, the offensive tackle from Southern Utah. Huge player. 
extremely wide wingspan, very athletic feet. And if you just watch his pass sets, you'd be stunned that he was picked in the fifth round. Somebody with his pass set acumen does not last that long. You watch his run blocking, you understand why he may have lasted to the fifth round. I'm going to put my stick in the ground and say, I think Braxton Jones starts at left tackle for the Bears this year, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm going to duck while all the sticks and arrows come in. Um, Braxton Jones is going to turn out to be a value pick for the Bears. Just just you wait. Their second pick in round five, 174, they get Dominique Robinson. Uh, he's listed as linebacker. He's an edge for Miami of Ohio. Had a great senior bowl. A very athletic guy that they can put into the rotation. Now, if you were counting on him to be your main edge threat, not a good idea. As your third edge to come in for 30 snaps a game and tear people up, I love this pick. Not like love this pick. And that's exactly the role he's going to be playing for the Bears. Gives them another young player at edge to develop who can give them some pass rush. Uh, And showed that against some of the top competition in the country at the Senior Bowl. So great pick. They skipped to round six, and now we've really started stack picks. There have been multiple trade downs. They've got a lot of ammunition, and they're just going to start taking swings. So the first one in round six, pick 186, Zachary Thomas, the offensive tackle from San Diego State. I think his future is a guard. His brother Cam Thomas also played at San Diego State. I like his film. Came to it late in the process. I think he's got a future being a rotational swing guard for the Bears and a good one. And you need players like that. And if you get them down in the sixth round, bingo, value. Mm-hmm. Round six, pick 203. They go after Tristan Ebner, the running back from Baylor. If you run outside zone, you need people that can catch nice wide swing screen passes and run outside, make one cut, take off, and dust a bunch of people. Tristan Ebner is both of those things, has history playing wide receiver, so he looks very natural catching the football. They're going to use him in that role. And, yeah, if he hits the seam on a one cut, he can take it. So that's why they reached out and got him. Their third sixth-round pick, number 207, they go after Doug Kramer, the local product, a center from Illinois. This was the head-scratcher for me. And if you can call a sixth-rounder a head-scratcher, I didn't really like Doug Kramer's tape all that much. I thought he was just sort of average. We ended up watching his tackle, Verdarian Lowe, a guy we interviewed at the Shrine Bowl. Doug Kramer didn't push me one way or another, had a very good athletic profile. Uh, Again, I'll trust him on a late-round lottery pick that he has things that they like. They got to sit in a room and interview with him. Uh, A lot of that's important in offensive line play. Certainly put Mustafer on notice. Uh, Yep, it's competition, and you will notice the theme of competition on the offensive line. Ryan Poles was not willing to do what they did last year um what the bears ended up having to do last year ryan poles was not there and duct tape together an offensive line call guys off the street and have them start uh force people into positions they weren't very comfortable with and you know just get justin fields killed he was like nope we're gonna have when they were done with this draft and their udfa class they had 19 offensive linemen potentially signed to the roster they were gonna sift through and find the best like 14 (laughs) and go to camp and then find the best eight or nine and throw a couple on the practice squad. They were not going to be short options. Were they all going to work out? No. Were they going to be short options to choose from? Also no. So they keep going in round seven, pick 226. They get to Tyree Carter, the guard from Southern, big, powerful guy who can run block. Love him. Love him. Yeah. Huge value in the seventh round. Uh, pick 254, they go after Elijah Hicks, the safety from California. A little bit undersized, going to be a really good special teamer for them to start off. 
kind of in the DeAndre Houston Carson mold, a little bit faster than DeAndre Houston Carson, but can come in and basically learn under him, which is great. This is where you get the guys that fill the roster, play special teams, end up filling a practice squad, come in late in a 17-game season and fill a roster spot for an injured guy. So Hicks has got a chance to stick for that. And then their very last pick, round seven, pick 255. They get Trenton Gill, the punter from North Carolina State, because they let Megapunt go this year in free agency, said they were not going to resign Pat O'Donnell, and needed a punter. Bottom of the seventh round, good as any a place to get one. After this draft class came in, um, where we were able to kind of evaluate everything that happened with free agency and the draft class together, I think the general idea both on offense and defense came together, which is we're going to have a really strong secondary and we are going to platoon ourselves into pass rush with, you know, creative pressures and, you know, probably a lot of simulated pressures, to be honest, where we're bringing Roquan, we're bringing Moro, we're bringing, you know, people from as many different angles and depths as we possibly can in order to force protection to slide away from Rob so that Rob gets the one-on-ones because he's really the only guy we have that can win one-on-ones at this point. So it does remind me a lot of what Seattle had to do when we were talking about Seattle last, this time last year, where we're like, God, the defensive line is thin, but the secondary is pretty nice. And then what, what do we see with Seattle? It's blitzing and blitzing and blitzing and, you know, they, they had to get creative to scheme up pressure, which Jamal Adams ended up being one of their, their better pass rushers when he was healthy because they were trying to scheme him up matchups with running backs that he could easily win. And I, I think that we're going to see a lot of the same stuff with Chicago. It's pressure through scheme, but they have the talent on the back end to just cover and make them try to block Robert Quinn for three and a half seconds, which very few people, even at Quinn's age, can do. He's still really, really good. Um, And then on top of that, you know, at receiver, they are trusting Justin to elevate people. That's they they are trusting Darnell Mooney to be ostensibly the number one, even though he's really more of a two. But he's he's the main receiving threat. Um, And they're trusting Velas to to be a yak monster. They're trusting the running backs to be yak monsters. They're trusting Komet to just take a leap and, you know, hopefully kind of be that big body threat that just wins with size and leverage more than separation ability because he doesn't have any separation ability. Um, You know, I anticipate that they're going to really be leaning on Chris Morgan to develop a lot of their young offensive linemen to be a competent run game. It's going to look very Seattle-ish. Not going to lie. Run the ball, play action, tons of crazy pressures on defense. Hope that your young quarterback can elevate a less than perfect roster and figure it out as you go. Now, this style of team relies on your quarterback, in Seattle's case, being Russell Wilson and being capable of elevating a team that's built like that. Whether Justin Fields is that quality of quarterback, statistically unlikely because Russell's one of the best quarterbacks of his generation, and I think putting all that pressure on Justin to be one of the best quarterbacks of his generation is unfair. But if he does end up working out and being that kind of guy... Yeah, this roster construction can get them through 2022. They'll at least be competent. And then 2023 is where we have fun. But it's a big if. It's several big ifs. A lot of things need to fall into place. The offensive line needs to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. The receivers, especially Mooney, need to stay healthy. 
The run game needs to be competent. The defense, especially the secondary, needs to be locked down. It's possible, but it's not something that I would absolutely bank on <laughs> if I was a Bears fan. It's it's definitely a hope for the best, expect the worst type roster construction. But again, general team of the day, it's the best they could do. The margin for error is not large. They are not going to have a lot of ability to overcome bad game management decisions, bad bounces, bad calls, uh, injuries. Those type of things are going to set them back. They're walking a very fine line this year to try and field a competitive roster and be competent and develop players without getting anybody crushed and make sure that Justin shows them enough to be the guy for the future. Now, that's tough to do. You might say, listen, you're talking about that, but you just told me what this offensive line looks like or you just told me what this wide receiver core looks like. It's not enough. You're not wrong. It's not ideal. If you match up this wide receiver core against almost any other wide receiver core in the National Football League, there's not a lot there. This is a bottom third unit easily from the jump. Might be bottom five, might be bottom two, depending on how hard you go digging, right, and who steps up and who doesn't. We don't really know what Bayless Jones is yet. But when, when we look at it on paper, it is not an intimidating group. Now, the offense comes from Green Bay. Green Bay's had a lot of wide receiver cores that were not typically intimidating groups. They've always had a star at the top, and Chicago does not have that Devontae Adams-level star at the top, which is a huge hole, right? You can just point to that and say they don't have that. 100% right, not trying to say they do. But they have filled in and expected Aaron to elevate things there, and they're expecting Justin to do the same and next year they will get him that A1 threat or a couple with all their uh, tens of millions of dollars that they have floating around. The other thing you need to do on a roster like this is fill it up <laughs> with cheap talent. And that brings us to the UDFA Hall. They took a lot of swings. Now, mm -hmm. this coming from the sort of Chris Ballard school, and I say the Chris Ballard school, the GM of the Indianapolis Colts, not someone that Poles has worked with necessarily, but Eberflus said, look, we we brought in 45 guys every year. Can you do that? Ryan Poles was like, I'm going to have to do that because, again, we still need to fill up the roster, and we have places where we didn't get as many players as we wanted to. Wide receiver was one of them, and they brought in a whole passel of skill position players. They brought in a bunch of wide receivers, five of them to be specific. I got really excited about them. I took the bait. Not surprising, right? EJ got excited about UDFAs. Not something you wouldn't bet on. Yeah. I watched them all, and I got psyched. And I said, hey, there's some talent here. There's a couple of guys that could, you know, make the roster push for practice squad. They brought in a couple of running backs, too, to back up. They brought in uh, one super high-profile one, Master Teague from Ohio State, and one not very high-profile one, uh, Demontre Tuggle from Ohio, as in the Ohio University, not the Ohio State University. Teague didn't stick. Tuggle did. Really like Tuggle. He's going to be a fourth or fifth running back for them. Probably a practice squad guy. But all the wide receivers they brought in that I got excited about didn't stick either. They were all gone within the first weekend. <sighs> Slippery rock, man. I really I, wish. I really I wish know. that Litwin worked out. <laughs> and there is, there is nothing more beloved in Chicago than an underdog wide receiver trying to make the roster. So this was this – was, ripe storyline for camp for people to get excited about a whole raft of underdogs 
None of them made it. The only guy that stuck through the first weekend of um, basically draft camp was Kevin Shaw, the wide receiver from Liberty who played with Malik Willis. But Cyrus Holder was a tall guy that could fly out of Duquesne. Um, Luke Little out of a university I've never heard of called the University of Mary. Also like a huge big body guy that could have been converted to tight end. Henry Litwin was the guy you mentioned out of Slippery Rock. I really liked local product Landon Lenar, Southern Illinois. Um, Savon Scarver out of Utah State could fly. None of those guys stuck. Shaw's the only one. And Teague was gone too. The folks who did stick, Jake Tongas, a receiving threat from Cal at tight end. Um, sort of that again, big, we'll just call him big slot. He played tight end at Cal. And Chase Allen, the tight end out of Iowa State, who I really like. He's the other tight end at Iowa State, not Charlie Kohler. Uh, every time he looked up in that offense, Chase Allen was making a key play for first down. He's a huge dude, really good blocker. I They have him fairly buried on the depth chart right now. I think given the preference of tight ends on this roster, and they are stacking up a lot of what I'll call Indianapolis tight ends uh, behind Cole Komet, not receiving threats, guys that are uh, trench warriors, um, pluggers in the run game. Uh, you know, Tongas definitely has the capacity to be that move and catch tight end chase allen is just a big guy that can play that role but also has some pretty good hands on the boundary so i think he sticks eventually tons of other players uh again more offensive line help uh john de the tackle from florida who we got to see at shrine bowl didn't end up getting drafted bears scoop him up see if they can get anything um, and then they went for linebackers. They went for a whole bunch of linebacker depth, which I presume is, you know, backup depth and special teamers. A lot of athletic guys that had something that pulled them off the radar. Christian Albright from Ball State, who is absolutely rocked up. C.J. Avery from Louisville. Jack Sanborn from Wisconsin. Jalen Alexander from Pursuit. Whole bunch of linebackers. Again, shotgun approach. See who sticks. Uh, we both like Sanborn. Um, Avery's got a great athletic profile if he can stay healthy. And Christian Albright, you know, did everything he could at Ball State, but it was Ball State, so we'll have to see coming out of the MAC how he fares. But I, I like this approach, and they grab a couple of tall corners late, Jalen Jones from Mississippi and Allie Green, the fourth from Missouri. But a ton of these guys on the, on the list that you'll see flashed up there aren't still with the Bears. We just highlighted a few who did stick um, and have a chance, again, on a roster that is um, towards the bottom end of the NFL overall to stick and stay. So I really like the approach of bring them all in, take a look. If they're not cool, get rid of them and, and bring some more in. The two that I'm probably most intrigued by are Jack Sanborn, um, who was, you know, a, a definitely a day three favorite for me at linebacker. I thought he was uh, Walmart Matt Milano, and I want to emphasize the Walmart part of that comp. <laughs> I'm not saying he's Matt Milano, but I think that he has really, really good instincts. He was the cleanup crew at Wisconsin, yeah. always in the right place at the right time, tackle machine, smart kid, tough kid. He's going to make the roster absolutely I think he's going to make the roster, especially with this linebacking core where it's Roquan, Morrow, basically nobody else. <laughs> like I, I definitely think that he's going to make it. And then the other one um, is going to be Ralph Holly from Western Michigan. Again, the defensive tackle rotation, particularly for pass rush, not, not super exciting. You know, uh, when you look at Holly at Western Michigan, he had 44 pressures last year. Didn't get a whole lot of pub because he only had five sacks. But if you watch the Akron game specifically, 
which my buddy who was on the Western Michigan coaching staff before we went to Shrine Bowl told me about Holly. He said, watch him because uh, Holly's teammate we saw at Shrine Bowl, the edge. Uh, Holly Fayad. Holly Fayad, yeah. And when you watch Fayad, you could also watch Holly at the same time. Watch the Akron game. He had 15 pressures in that game against Akron. Just absolutely beat the shit out of them. And I know it's Akron. I get it. But it's hard to get 15 pressures in college football. I don't care who you're playing against. Like, unless you're Alabama against VMI, that's not a number that you normally see. So, Ralph Holly's got a shot here, um, especially as a you know a penetrating three technique type on a roster that doesn't really have a whole lot of that available. So he definitely has a shot to make it. But overall, again, take as many swings as possible. See what sticks on this roster. You might as well. As a part-time Bears fan, I'm going to begin your training. What's that? Are you, are you ready to have your heart broken? Oh, I, I'm fully prepared to have my heart broken. Nice. They didn't keep him. Shut up. He's gone? <laughs> He's gone. Why? I, We're not even at camp yet. Who's to say? I If I don't get my Cyrus Holder, you don't get your Holly. I liked his film as well. I but liked Holly. No, they didn't keep him. And I think they're... We're, we as Bears fans are going to have to be used to this. We're gonna we're gonna get attached to somebody they bring in. Uh, they're gonna do it at cuts. The next round of this is coming at cuts, right? First cut down, second cut down. The Bears will bring in players from both of those rounds of cuts, and they might be your favorite player from another team, and you're like, yeah, and they'll be there, and then they'll be gone. There will is be Sanborn a... still there? At least Sanborn is there. You okay, can pin your hopes to Sanborn. No, that's makes great sense but like literally I, I got excited about probably three out of the six of the wide receivers they brought in Shaw was not one of them uh you know he's a good player but I I thought other players had more benefit to bring to this wide receiver room none of them even made the first weekend I was like what I spent I spent all this time watching their tape what do you mean you cut them um it you know it's the way it's gonna go when you are gutting a roster, looking for your guys, changing coaching staff, change in scheme, changing philosophy. They are going to bring in a lot of folks. This reminds me very much of when Pete Carroll and John Schneider came to Seattle. And then in the first year they had 800 plus roster moves in 350 days, right? At 850 something roster moves in 350 days. Like they just churned and they eventually found a lot of guys a lot of udfas as well that fit their system and they were able to go forward with they're just getting started folks polls and company are going to continue to use every avenue to bring people in so if you don't like the look of the offensive line or the backup depth guess what take heart it'll change if you don't like the wide receiver room they could still add another one if you don't think there's a receiving tight end on the roster they might pick one up like it's it's gonna keep moving like this god ryan poles just has zero regard for my feelings in terms of how to build this roster uh i mean my guy from slippery rock can't make it my guy from western michigan can't make it i got nothing left but jack sanborn now he's gonna jump you on valentine's day he is not interested in in your take uh, final segment, team floor, team ceiling, as usual. This is the floor as we see it in wins and the ceiling as we see it in wins. Now, EJ, uh, as Bears fan, I-, I see that he is fully emotionally invested in this team. Both his floor and his ceiling are even higher than me. And I love the Bears. 
and even I couldn't bring myself to be as positive about it as you were. My my floor is three, and the floor is three because, again, I believe in the secondary. I believe in the coaching staff. I believe in Justin Fields. I believe in what they're doing the offensive line, but my floor, considering their schedule, is three because, boy, their schedule is brutal. Their ceiling to me, if everything goes correct and they become – you know, a slightly below average team, which is what we're hoping for, is about six. Truly considering their schedule, a below average team against all of the great teams they're playing against should end up with about six, which, to be honest, positions them pretty well in the draft in a very, very, very loaded draft class to, you know, get one of the freakish tight end talents or freakish receiving talents at the top. Um, You know, maybe if there's Maybe if Braxton Jones doesn't end up playing as well as we hope he will as a fifth-round rookie at left tackle, you know, maybe there's a left tackle out there that they like. They'll, they'll be well-positioned to get one of them and then also throw $100 million at a whole bunch of free agents and see what they can drum up there. Um, but, yeah, six six is about as high as I'm willing to go. Yeah, I saw that. I, I think it's a very common sentiment around Chicago right now that Six or seven wins is probably tops, and, you know, the floor could be really bad. I don't think so, and I don't think it's an emotional call. I think they won six games last year with Nagy asleep at the wheel and not helping Justin actively in some games looking like he was trying to punish Justin. Justin is a tremendous talent and will give you a couple wins on his own. He showed last year, even in that cesspool of whatever they called an offense, that he could pull a couple, you know, out of his hat and create wins where there weren't any. He's going to continue to do that. And he's going to have more chance to do that because he's going to be upright more often and he's going to have a functional offense. So if they won six under the completely dysfunctional whatever it was that Nagy was putting together with zero practice snaps with the first teamers in camp, with an entire offseason, with all the snaps with the first-teamers and a functional NFL offense, albeit a new one that he has to learn and get used to, and probably a solid running game to support him. If they could win six last year in that situation, I think they can win eight. And I did your trick. I went through the schedule. I don't think it's as brutal as you think it is. I think there's nine games they have a chance in. Now, does that mean they're going to win nine games? No, no, no. No, they're not going to win nine games. Even eight games, got to remember, it's a 17-game season now. They'd be a sub-500 team. Probably not going to make the playoffs, especially in this division, and they'd still be a sub-500 team with eight wins. That's the ceiling. That's the max. If Justin plays well, everything solidifies, defense plays okay. Of those nine games, I think they have a shot in on paper at the beginning of the season. We all know that changes as it goes on. I think that's a reasonable ceiling to predict. It is their max. They would top out around eight wins. Floor, five. Because your floor is three. I'm going to tack a couple of those Justin wins on, those improbable, he shouldn't have done it. He went for a 60-yard scramble at the gun and, you know, got a touchdown, basically stole them a win they shouldn't have. So I'm going to take your floor of three, add a couple of those Justin miracles to it, and get my five. So eight's my ceiling, five's my floor, and I don't, think it's i don't think either one of those are really far out of line or super emotional for me the justin fields miracle this year is just him staying upright (laughs) i i would classify that as a miracle at this point just based on what we saw last year or even just having a competent offensive game plan around him i would take that too but 
We'll see. I, I think there's a lot of things to be optimistic about, but really the main thing I'm optimistic about as somebody who holds the Bears close to my heart at this point, uh, especially with the Texans being an absolute fucking mess. Um, it, you know, my my optimism is really with 2023 and 2024. I think that's where, mm-hmm. where things get fun. This year, it's just, please survive. Just don't be embarrassing. Get to 2023. We'll figure it out then, um, which I think they are well positioned to do. Again, if you go into the season with those expectations – you're going to have fun. If you go into the season with expectations of challenging for a seven seed, you're just setting yourself up to be disappointed, but we'll see. Uh, you know, either way, we'll enjoy games at Soldier Field while we still can. And uh, I'll have to make a trip out there and, and see a game at Soldier Field and freeze my ass off sometime in like November or December uh, while I still can, because I don't think the new field at Arlington is going to be outdoors, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, one day, one day, EJ. Yeah, I've been there. I I actually went to the last game before they renovated it and dropped the spaceship on it. So I went to the the last game in old Soldier Field. That was the, that's the one game I've been to in Soldier Field. I wanted to see it before they changed it. So it was right before they played the two years in Champagne while they were doing the construction. Um, and yeah, it was not the best stadium experience, but I love the hell out of it. It was awesome. It was one of the best days of my life. I really really enjoyed it. So yeah, I'd love to get back out to Chicago. Uh, see a game obviously know a lot more people there now than I did then uh, and it would be fun either way because I'm going to have fun with this team and that's that's my goal for them is is to watch them have you know actually make some plays on offense that would be a rarity in Chicago I would love that (laughs) just all by itself watch Justin progress watch some of the young guys progress they're going to have their highlights they're going to have their failures it's fine um, you know, see how far Roquan can push it under some very solid linebacking coaching. Watch that secondary gel. There's so much talent in that secondary. All players that I really liked in college. Um, I'm I'm excited for that stuff. Am I thinking that the result at the end of the year is going to be something to write home about? I really don't. That would be a flat-out miracle. That doesn't mean I'm not going to have fun with it. I have reasonable expectations, and I'm going to watch this team progress and think about what they could be in 2023 while I'm doing it and and go from there well that brings us to the end uh tomorrow is vikings day so if you're a bears fan and you want to know what we're gonna have to deal with uh with the great enemy up in minnesota make sure to come back same time tomorrow same place for our look at the vikings and then uh, we're going to talk about the packers the day after that and then kind of do a macro look at the nfc north as a whole on friday you know, predicting rookies of the year in the division, offensive defense player of the year, coach of the year, MVP, all that kind of stuff, which I imagine there's still going to be some Bears representation in those predictions because the Bears still do have some pretty talented players that we're going to end up talking about in that macro division look. So hope you all come back tomorrow and uh, take a listen to the Vikings episode. And until then, we'll see you later. Bear down. Bear down.